And a very good afternoon to you listeners. Welcome to This Week in Moab. I'm your host this evening. My name is Howard Trenholm. It is an absolute joy and a privilege to have my guest this evening. Not only the, the fact of who this guest is, but the fact there's a guest in the studio with me for the first time since, oof, I don't even know, 14, 15 months ago. Walt Dabney is going to be my guest for the hour this afternoon. Um, for those that don't know Walt, he is now retired, but he had a very long career in basically public service. At the time, he was the superintendent for the national parks in our area, which is Canyonlands, Arches, Hovenweep, and Natural Bridges. And he was also the director of state parks in Texas for a number of years before returning to Moab to be fully active and engaged in our community. Walt is going to take us on an auditory history of public lands in America. And for those that know Walt, I may know many of you might do that and may have seen this presentation, this will be a first for him because normally he has a visual guide to show you what he's doing. But today, he's going to do it for you radio listeners. So, Walt, welcome to KZMU again. And this wearing a hat as a, an educator this time as always. Well, thank you, Howard. It's, it's great to be here, and of course, it's good to be back in Moab. I, I was with the Park Service for 30 years and then went down to Texas uh, to take uh, the state park system down there, I guess because I spoke fluent Texan or some such thing as that. Uh, came back at the end of being uh, state park director for 11 and a half years, came back to Moab, and because we love this part of the country and the biggest single reason Howard is and I'll tell this story here in a minute as I do this discussion Texas doesn't have any public lands so all the things I like to do when I grew up hunting and fishing but that my granddad had a ranch so that's where we went that ranch was gone by the time I got back so we didn't have that anymore but mountain biking camping hiking and that kind of thing in Texas the only place you might do that or can do that is the state park system and a, a, some, a little bit of national park lands and so forth. In Texas, you're just fine as long as you stay on the sidewalk or the road. You won't be trespassing. Coming back to Moab, I, I just was thrilled to be back here where, you know, could do those things and, and not worry, worry about it. And, of course, many great things have changed, like the trail systems here now that, for mountain biking and all that kind of thing. When I got back to Moab, I was just astounded to hear people talking, not most people, but some people talking <clears throat> very seriously about the fact that we shouldn't have these federal lands. We shouldn't have these public lands. We ought to give these lands back to the states. And I'm thinking, back to the states and, and, and so forth. And I really got to looking into this. And what I ended up doing is is putting this presentation I'm going to tell you talk to you about right now but oftentimes I would think when people were saying that you and I need to load up and go to Texas and just see what that actually looks like on the ground and most of the other states outside the 11 western states that are mostly privately owned now the things we take for granted you just can't do well, in, in talking to you today, we all know what the United States looks like. We know what the shape of the states looks like and so forth. But it didn't always look like that, obviously. When European man got here uh, initially uh, to the New World, 
he found they found hundreds of thousands of Native Americans here, dozens and dozens of tribes, and I, I would guess very seriously that those folks weren't sitting around hoping that Europeans would discover them, and I'm sure the longer we were here, the more certain they were that it wasn't a great idea, but but we're here, and I'm not going to dwell on that that part of the discussion today. That could be a whole different sure different could. program. I'm going to start with the 13 colonies, which were British colonies established on the eastern seaboard of the United States. In 1776, and you all know your history and so forth, the colonies finally had had enough of, of British rule and and declared their independence, started the American Revolution, 1776. And that raged on for five or six years, and it was not at all certain that the colonies would were going to prevail. In fact, it was very doubtful at times. At the same time, they were trying to figure out how are we going to govern this country if we did, if we are successful in this. And, and one of the things that was a major sticking point, in fact, the biggest sticking point, and I didn't realize this until I started putting this together, is six colonies, Georgia, South Carolina, North Carolina, Virginia, Connecticut, and Massachusetts, claim lands all the way from the Atlantic coast to the Mississippi River. They're western lands. And the other seven colonies then, to become states, said, we're not going to form this government until those lands are become the property of all of us. So they argued for five years. They agreed no states would exist until the Articles of Confederation were signed. They finally were signed in 1781 after the wording was included in the agreement that the lands would be considered as common property of the nation because they were wrested from the common enemy, Great Britain, by blood and treasure of the 13 states. Sorry, Howard. It's okay. The uh, colonial western claims went all the way to the Mississippi River. Over the next number of years until 1802, each of those states, those six states, relinquished their claim to those western territories, and the 13 original colonies became the shapes with the boundaries of the states you know as those 13 states along the eastern seaboard. So how did we get the rest? We got the land to the Mississippi River in the Treaty of, of Paris, which was signed in 1783 by the then new United States, by Great Britain, by France, and actually by Spain as well. That ceded all these lands to the United States. In 1803, uh, Thomas Jefferson was the President of the United States. We owned half the Mississippi River to the middle of the river. We had no port. Uh, down on the Gulf of Mexico to get our goods up and down the Mississippi River. Uh, Jefferson was, was, uh, was negotiating with Napoleon Bonaparte, who had just initiated another one of his many wars in Europe and was, was uh, needing money. And, and Bonaparte suggested instead of us just dickering over New Orleans, how about if I sell you all of the French territory in the United States? And while there may be some debate about whether the United States or the president has the authority to purchase land, 
I don't think we'd want to pursue that or, or we would be giving France back the Louisiana Purchase and all those states that were carved out of that, which that purchase alone doubled the size of the then United States. They negotiated a deal, probably the finest real estate deal in world history, if not certainly the American history. For $15 million, the then United States bought the Louisiana Purchase. Do you know how much land that was? Approximately. I mean, no, I don't. But it doubled the size in the states of Montana, North Carolina, North Dakota, South Dakota, Wyoming, Nebraska, Iowa, Missouri, Arkansas, Oklahoma, Kansas, Colorado. All were either entirely or mostly carved out of there. So it's a heck of a bunch of land. Fifteen million. Fifteen million dollars. Wow. Yeah, pretty good deal. <laughs> In, in 1818, instead of going to war, and we'd just been to war with, with Britain again in 1812, which was a very worthless war, as all most of them are, instead of going to war with Britain, we gave up claims north of the 49th parallel, uh, and Britain gave up claims south of the 49th parabell, parallel, which is the current boundary with Canada today. And that really in, included lands that were included in Minnesota and North, North Dakota. In 1819, the Revolutionary War did not include Florida. Florida was owned by Spain. And, and there were lots of problems with Florida. Uh, unfortunately, in her history, runaway <laughs> slaves were going into Florida to escape. Uh, Native Americans were raiding out of Florida. The U.S. said, we're going to go in there and, and take it, and if you want to fight, we'll do that. Spain did not want to fight. Spain owed the United States about $5 million. So they said, how about you cancel our debt? We will cede Florida, West Florida, and a couple of pieces in Louisiana and one little piece in Colorado, the Spanish territories remaining in the New World, to the United States. In 1836, my home state of Texas revolted from uh, Mexican rule, and over the next nine years, they were successful, and over the next nine years, Texas was actually an independent country, the Republic of Texas, until it became a state in 1845. But Texas, by that time, claimed land, uh, a panhandle of Texas ran all the way to Wyoming, in fact, right at where the the city of Rollins, Wyoming is now, would have been the northern boundary of Texas. Wow. <laughs> uh, it, was, it was just huge. In 1846, a couple of things happened. Uh, people, uh, if you know, you know your history in the United States, there was this slogan, 54-40 or fight, meaning we were going to fight again against Great Britain because we wanted to push the American boundary from the 49th parallel, which is what we recognize today, all the way to the 54th, almost a half parallel. Well, at the same time, President Polk had a war going on with Mexico, the Mexican-American War, and he certainly did not want to fight Britain and Mexico at the same time on two different boundaries. So they negotiated this settlement of the Oregon Territory. The U.S. relinquished any claim north of the 49th parallel. Britain <coughs> relinquished the the area that is now Washington, Oregon, and Idaho, and war was averted then, but not the Mexican War. Uh, we fought with Mexico for a couple of years, 
and eventually in the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo, which I'll mention again in a minute, uh, Mexico ceded, uh, recognized the boundary of Texas, and also ceded the Mexican session, which includes the states of Utah, Arizona, a bunch of New Mexico, Nevada, and California. Uh, so from war, we, we got uh, the Mexican session. In 1853, we needed a route for the southern uh, route of the Transcontinental Railroad. We negotiated with Mexico and bought the Gadsden Purchase in 1853 for Mexico for $10 million. Um, in, in 1867, probably the second best land deal we ever did, uh, the U.S. Uh, Secretary of State Seward bought Alaska for $7.2 million from Russia. <laughs> you imagine that today, $7.2 million. It's a lot of money. I mean, you, you read it to today's standards. It's a fair amount, but still, for Alaska? Oh, yeah. Unbelievable. And uh, then in 1898, we had Americans and Europeans in, in, the, the, in Hawaii. Hawaii was a monarchy, a stable country, had its government. And... <clears throat> The businessmen there, American and and uh, European businessmen, decided they didn't want any restrictions on what they were doing over there. So they, in essence, did a coup and seized Hawaii, the the monarchy of Hawaii, uh, with the help of the United States Marines, who had been sent in there under basically the pretext that these these business people were in danger. So we annexed Hawaii in 1898 formally. First governor appointed in Hawaii was a guy named Dole. If you ever buy a pineapple, you might recognize that <laughs> name. He was God love capitalism. That family was was certainly some of the business people that did that. In 1899, we uh, acquired the territory of Puerto Rico in the Spanish-American War. And another one I didn't know about was in 1917, one year before we entered World War One, we bought from Denmark uh, the Virgin Islands for $27 million. Wow. So that's where the lands we got from war, from treaty, and from purchase. One of the things people told me when I got here is, you know, we shouldn't have these lands as federal lands. There's nothing in the constitution that allows us to do that i couldn't believe that i usually had a copy with me but but uh, uh so i went to article 4 section 3 which is considered the is called the property clause of the u.s constitution article 1 is the legislature 2 is the executive branch 3 is judicial and then the property clause follows it says congress shall have power to dispose of and to make all needful rules and regulations respecting the territory or other property belonging to the United States. And nothing in this Constitution shall be so construed as to prejudice any claims of the United States. So just to clarify, it is written in the Constitution that the government can own lands. It's absolutely okay. written in the Constitution. That statement that I just yeah. read, yeah. And, the, and that Congress has the authority to deal with any questions about that? So how, if that's the case, and we got all these lands through the means that I just described on there, how did these lands mostly become privately owned? 
Well, it started out early on when the American when the American country, the United States, won its independence. It had absolutely no money, but it had lots of land, and it kept adding land through the means I just dis discussed when we started this. The first giveaway of lands were bounty lands, and and the United States government gave paid the people who had been in the Continental Army with land. If you had been a colonel, you could get as much as 500 acres. If you were a private or an ordinary soldier, as little as 100 acres. <clears throat> Subsequently, in the Ordinance of 1785 and other land acts, land was surveyed and sold either to individuals or speculators for a dollar an acre. Later on, additional other acts raised that price to as much as a dollar 25 an acre. You could buy uh, 640 acres, a one square mile of land for $640. Wow. But $640 then was a whole lot of money. Yeah. All these acts together transferred 179 million acres of that public estate to individuals. The Homestead Act was passed in 1862, and my interest was really in how did these lands move from the federal government's ownership to, to individual people. And, and this was happening moving from east to west, and, and that just makes, uh, makes sense. The Homestead Act of 1862 said that if you're the head of a household, and the head of a household did not have to be a man, it could be a man or a woman, you could get 160 acres. That was later increased to 320 and then to 640 because as the better lands got homesteaded or had been sold previously, you needed more land to make a, a, make a living on. And, and again, most people in those days made their living through agriculture. You had to be 21 years old, you had to build a house, and you had to farm that land for five years before you could do anything else with it. Under that Homestead Act, on top of the lands that were sold previously, 270 million acres of that public estate were transferred to individual uh, owners. Railroads. We, we needed to hook the country together, and the best way to do that in those days was by rail to move people and goods back and forth other than the river system, which mostly ran north and south. Railroad Act, again, we had no money. The railroads were paid all land within 200 feet of either side of the track, so a 400-foot swath along the track. In addition, if it was in an existing state, the railroad was paid 6,400 6, acres or 10 square miles per completed mile of track. If it was in the territories, they were paid 12,800 acres per mile of track completed. In total, here's another big number, 180 million acres of, of land was given to the railroads to pay for the railroads, and in most cases, that land was quickly sold to land speculators or individuals. So you've got a huge amount of land that's been transferred just pursuant to these, these various laws. Republic of Texas, as I pointed out, uh, <coughs> Was claimed all that land all the way to Rollins, Wyoming. Those of you that can picture the shape of the state of Texas, it had become a state in 1845. In 1850, in the Great Compromise, which was another slavery issue question, Texas agreed because Texas needed money. 
Texas agreed to sell all of the land outside of what you recognize as the Texas boundary to the United States, who assumed uh, $10 million in Texas debt. So that was in 1850. So that, that land came into public ownership uh, as a result of that transaction. Why does Texas not have publicly owned lands? I get that question all the time, and, and, and I needed to look it up to figure out why. 96% of Texas is privately owned land. <clears throat> How'd that happen? Pre-revolution in Texas uh, were Spanish and Mexican land grants, about 26 million mm -hmm. acres of Spanish and Mexican land grants. Those were honored when Texas became a country. Subsequently, Republic of Texas headright grants were, were given out. For example, a, a primary category one head grant for head of household if you didn't already have a land grant, you could get as much as one league and one labor of land. A league is, is uh, about 177 acres of agricultural land. A labor is, is about 4,200 acres of grazing land. So 4,400 plus acres of, of, of land you could get as a head of a household. Uh, other Texas war veterans were paid in land. The railroads in Texas, again, Texas had no money at the end of their revolution, and the railroads were paid 35 million acres of land, and that land by Texas Constitution had to be sold uh, immediately. They couldn't hang on to it, so that went to individuals and land speculators. By 1900, all the unappropriated lands in Texas were gathered up by the legislature and put in a permanent school fund uh, for the children in Texas, but most of the land was then gone. There's only 2% federal land in Texas. And just to give you an example of what that means, when Texas wanted to have a national park, Big Bend National Park, in the 40s, uh, it took them several years to make a small state park, to foreclose on tax delinquent properties out in West Texas, to buy up ranches, and finally, one week after D-Day invasion in 1944, uh, the state of Texas handed the keys to, to the president, and, uh, and Texas had its first national park. But they had to buy up ranches to, in order to, to have them apart. John Wesley Powell, all the people in this part of the world know who Powell was, uh, going and exploring the Colorado River. Uh, on two occasions, an uh, unbelievable expedition that they did, fraught with danger. But later on, by 1877, Powell was the head of the, the director of the U.S. Geological Survey, and he absolutely shocked the conference delegates to the National Academy of Science Conference in 1877 when he made the statement and provided uh, maps of the land that most of the land west of the 100th meridian could not support conventional agriculture, which requires at least 20 annual inches of rain or irrigation. Uh, Powell provided the map. If you look at where the 100th meridian is, it runs about I, up through I-35 in Texas, up through Oklahoma, Kansas, uh, Nebraska into South Dakota and North Dakota, everything to the west of that, all the way to the Cascades. 
Powell is saying will not support traditional agriculture. It is too dry. And of course, we're seeing that today. Powell was awfully correct. Uh, but people didn't want to hear that. He caught a lot of flack for that kind of thing. So how are states added? By the time Powell made that statement, most much of the lands that was arable, most of the lands that was farmable had largely been, been uh, claimed or bought or claimed. Adding states also is part of Article 4, Section 3. New states are, can be admitted by the Congress, and there are several stipulations. You can't carve a, one state out of an existing state or one state out of two or more states without all, any involved existing states agreeing and Congress agreeing. And that generally has not, in fact, been done. To figure out what this land was, the rectangular survey system was established in 1785, uh, largely under the auspices of Thomas Jefferson. That's the township system, uh, range in township, where you have a 36 square mile uh, block, uh, six miles on each side, each numbered block. Uh, the state of Utah, for example, is completely gridded with those blocks, uh, as is every other state in the nation. Utah at statehood received four sections per township for very specific things. Utah petitioned multiple times between 1868 and 1896 to be admitted to the Union, and for a variety of reasons that you learn probably in Utah history and, and so forth. That was not agreed to until 1896. But Utah got four sections per township. Most of the other uh, states got two sections per township. One of the things I heard from some people is that Utah wants its lands back. That we, first of all, lands back suggests that they had belonged to Utah. If you look at your history, when the Mormon pioneers came into the Salt Lake Valley with Brigham Young, that was 1847. They actually were not coming into the United States. They were coming into Mexico. Mexico owned that whole area until the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo a year later. So that treaty formally gave all that land to the United States, which, which they called the Utah Territory. But finally in 1896, July of 1896, Utah passed, uh, submitted its constitution, Congress agreed. And Section 3, Part 2 of that Utah Statehood Act says that the, that the people inhabiting said proposed state do agree and declare they forever disclaim all right and title to the unappropriated public lands lying within the boundaries thereof. It went on to say in Section 12, that the said state of Utah shall not be entitled to any further or other grant of land for any purpose than is expressly provided in this act. Well, what did Utah get? Utah got seven, nearly seven and a half million acres. And one of the reasons it got more, more sections, two more sections per township, is it was recognized as being an extremely dry state. Looking at that Utah desert, they knew they were going to have to come up with some way to get water. And one of the specific areas that Utah has to use some of this public land 
is 500,000 acres, half million acres, that was specifically set aside for building reservoirs in the state of Utah. Seven and a half million acres. Utah state lands today, they were given 7.4 million acres at statehood. Uh, 4.1 million of those acres have already been sold. Those lands are now privately owned and not available uh, publicly. Nevada was given two sections per township. They received 2 million acres of land, and they have sold all but 300,000 acres of that land. Just um, just jump in here, Walt, a second. Just to remind the listeners, you're listening to KZMU Moab. This is This Week in Moab. I'm your host, Harold Trent. I'm joined for the hour with Walt Dabney, giving us a brief history of public lands in America. Thanks, Walt. Off you go. Well, the, along the line, people started moving out west. Trappers were coming back talking about absolutely amazing things, uh, lands of smoke and fire that uh, belch steam and water and so forth. And people, uh, sure, just figured those guys have been out there way too long by themselves and uh, <laughs> were coming back. But just to check, in 1871, the Hayden Expedition was sent out to Yellowstone, spent a, half, uh, spent a month out there, had a photographer by the name of William Henry Jackson and a painter by the name of Thomas Moran who documented that in 1872, based on the report of the Hayden administration, President Grant signed the Yellowstone Act, which w was really not only America's, but the world's first significant national park that was set aside, not just for wealthy or royalty, but for all, all people uh, in the country. Yellowstone, right off the bat, was opposed by the locals. <laughs> uh, one of the papers said that we consider the passage of this act as a blow at the prosperity, future prosperity of Bozeman. Well, if you've been to Bozeman, they're not doing too badly today. Argument was that nobody will ever get there. They worked hard to keep it from happening uh, or, and to deauthorize it. The, the government sent the Army in. If you know Yellowstone, Mammoth Hot Springs was Fort Yellowstone. The stone buildings there were part of the fort, and the Army maintained and operated Yellowstone for many, many years, probably 30 years. In 1901, uh, certainly a sad event occurred. President McKinley was assassinated, but it, it also absolutely changed uh, America and conservation forever. And what we have today, I'm going to spend a little time with, was directly related to that. The Forest Service was established in 1905 under the direction of Gifford Pinchot. Uh, <clears throat> Pinchot's dad had been a lumber baron, made his money that way, told Gifford, you're not following in my footsteps. I'm going to send you to forestry school, and you're going to put together back together much of what I destroyed. Forestry in those days was sending huge crews in there, completely clear-cutting it, not cleaning anything, not replanting anything, move on to the next place. And if grasses came back, then they were completely overrun with livestock, mostly sheep, and there were absolutely no stocking rates on public lands. So you just, the more the better. Wild and, west. of course, that absolutely destroyed what was left of, of the watershed. And the thing that started to turn this around was major flooding. If you know the town of Manti, LaSalle, or Manti Utah, it was wiped out several times by major floods that just took out the heart of the 
of the town over there. In 1891, the Forest Reserve Act was passed. It allowed a president to set aside forest reserves from lands in the public domain. President Harrison set it aside and set aside 13 million. Grover Cleveland set aside 25. William McKinley, before he was assassinated, set aside seven. And Teddy set aside 150 million acres wow. of national forest. The, uh, the governor of Utah petitioned for the Wasatch Cache Forest to be established in 1897 because of serious flooding from the area and, and because when you're thinking about your water supply and there's hundreds of thousands of sheep wandering around up on the watershed and you wonder why your water's tasting a little funny, Howard, it, uh, they, they subsequently got all those lands withdrawn from, from sale and, uh, and, and protected. And one of the primary reasons for national forest lands is, is watershed protection. Something I didn't know and I'm really excited about is the LaSalle National Forest. We're looking out the window at it right now. Would not be here if Teddy Roosevelt had not have used the Forest Reserve Act and in January of 1906 set aside what was not already privately owned land or we wouldn't have it up there oh, now. Thanks, it would not Teddy. be. The San Juan National Forest in June of 1905, the Coconino in July of 1908 are just examples of of uh, lands that were set aside by Roosevelt and Pinchot. The way they did that is Pinchot was associated with the Yale Forestry School. In fact, his dad funded part of the establishment of the Yale Forestry School. They would literally take topographic maps with his students and they would draw the hydrologic boundary, the forest boundary on these maps, put it in a proclamation and Teddy would sign it and it would become a forest reserve. Wow. The Forest Service mission is, is an interesting mission. Their mission says they're to sustain the health, diversity, and productivity of the nation's forest and, the, and grasslands to meet the needs of present and future generations, which means we don't have the ability right today to destroy it in a way that doesn't leave it to the future. That forest system now has about 193 million acres, most of which was set aside under the Forest Reserve Act. Teddy signed the Antiquities Act of 1906. The first uh, monument was Devil's Tower set aside. It's been used by over 17 presidents, over mostly over local objections. And just think about this. If, if you hadn't had the monument ability, the Antiquities Act ability, you probably wouldn't have Grand Canyon. Arches was set aside as a monument. Grand Tetons, Olympic, Zion, Petrified Forest, uh, Capitol Reef and many more pet, uh, were set aside under the monument status and eventually converted to national parks by Congress. Grand Canyon, Teddy looked out at that site and said there's no way humans can, can make that better. They tried three times to get a bill. Uh, it was completely opposed uh, by, by locals and in 1908 Teddy set it aside as, as a national monument. What did he do, and why? One of the re the reason I am so completely thankful for for Teddy Roosevelt, who was Republican uh, president, he set aside over 230 million acres of public lands, over 100 national forests, 51 fish and wildlife refuges, 
five national parks and 18 national monuments, including cedar or uh, natural bridges here in just south of us. By 1916, the War Department and the Department of Agriculture were running the national park units. They combined them under the National Park Service uh, uh, Organic Act, which, which says that the Park Service is to provide for the enjoyment of these places in such a manner and by such means as will leave them unimpaired for the enjoyment of future generations. So a little bit different from the from the the Forest Service and BLM, but still very important. And within that national park system today are the the historic sites and prehistoric sites and 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 fabulous uh, natural places that make us who we are as Americans and are the envy of the world. The BLM, the Bureau of Land Management, was established in 1946. The BLM created by President Truman was combined out of the General Land Office and the Grazing Service. It's responsible for the management of minerals on all federal lands. It manages all non-designated public lands, and so in total about 285 million acres of the public lands are managed by the BLM. In 1976, an extremely important law was passed by Congress. This changed a whole lot of things. I had no idea until I started putting this together that the Homestead Act of 1862 was not repealed. You could homestead in the lower 48 of the United States until 1976. Of course, there wasn't any way to farm those lands because they were extremely dry, but you still could. It repealed that. And instead of disposing of the federal estate through sale and, and homesteading, Congress in Section 102, uh, Part 1, put the statement that the public lands be retained in federal ownership unless as a result of a land use planning procedure provided for in this act, it is determined that a disposal of a particular parcel would serve the national interest. Maybe a solar farm, Howard? <laughs> well, isn't it interesting how other states, I mean, Utah has its own views on it, but Nevada did sell a lot of its public lands for development, basically. Well, and to raise money. And to raise money. I mean, that's what they, that's what yeah. they were for, but they're gone. Utah sold 4.1 million of their 7.4. Yeah. So yeah. more than half of them are already gone. So I want to talk just briefly about uh, some of the issues, challenges we sure. have. I think we're doing all right, aren't we? Uh, we are. Starting with Yellowstone, uh, in, in parks, whether they're national parks or state parks or probably even local parks, we started making them too small. People said, well, Yellowstone, two million acres, that's unbelievable. Nobody will ever get there and so forth. But the big problem with Yellowstone, the Yellowstone ecosystem is well over six million acres. And, and what is now, you, you know, as Yellowstone is a high plateau. In fact, it's the summer range for animals like bison and elk. They migrated out of there. Now, so you've got an absolute conflict with them trying to get down to, in the winter uh, to where they can make a living. Yellowstone is surrounded by certainly the Grand Tetons, but also uh, six national forests. But outside those national forest boundaries are private lands. So... <coughs> Uh, difficult to manage, especially if along the Yellowstone boundary you're, you're establishing 
grazing allotments for sheep and so forth, sheep and cattle, and you've got uh, animals like grizzly bear and wolves that you're trying to have a natural population. So we should have done it right, and the only answer there to me, if you were going to try to figure out what we could salvage, it would be to manage as closely as possible those national forests in support of the Yellowstone ecosystem, and I think they're moving toward that now. Canyonlands, one near and dear to my heart, was initially intended to be a million-acre park that would have been the entire erosion basin of Canyonlands. It was whittled down because of arguments between two Utah senators. One wanted a million and the other wanted 35,000 acres in three separate pieces uh, for a total of 35,000 acres. They just politically argued it down to, to where you had island in the sky and needles and later the maze added instead of a million acres it's 334,000 acres. And, and if you're standing on the basin, which I have many times, and talk to people up there looking into that basin, ask them where the park is, they assume it's that whole sure. bowl, erosion bowl that they're looking at, and it clearly is not. And someday I still think that really needs to happen. Visitation is huge. If you're in Moab, I don't have to share, explain to you that visitation is absolutely uh, overwhelming not only parks but the uh, public lands as well and this is a phenomenon with with national and state parks all over the nation uh, as busy as Moab is now we don't even have the foreign visitors here yet because of COVID so there's no telling what that will eventually look like uh, your public lands the things that uh, the public lands do do or certainly the multiple use concept is timber, minerals, watershed, recreation, range and grazing, wildlife and fisheries, and science and historic. And one of the the constant uh, comments I hear is, well, they just don't make any money and they could make some money. Well, that is largely a factor of Congress's decisions. And you just take, for example, Grazing, and at one time President Hoover established a commission on, on conservation of public domain in 1931, and that commission recommended that all the public lands in the West used primarily for livestock grazing should be given to the states. Well, the state, western states, led by Governor Dern of Utah, said there's no way. These things don't pay anything. They just cost us to <laughs> run them, and by the way, People in 49 other states are paying to make that happen now. We'd be nuts. And uh, so they didn't do that. But if you look at it, I think it's a valid argument, and you need to look at all aspects of, of multiple use. It's a valid argument that we ought to run this a little more like a business. If you, for example, take grazing, and I don't want to pick on any any one thing, and I'm not telling saying what anything ought to be particularly, but if you just take grazing... And you look at, and I took this off the USDA uh, website for private non-irrigated pasture land. And, and in Colorado, the average, if you're going to lease somebody's land, is, is $19 an AUM to le lease private land. For one AUM is a cow-calf or five sheep or five goats. Wyoming, it's $21.50. Nevada, $9.90, of course, Nevada. Nevada is pretty, uh, pretty dry. In Utah, that average is sixteen fifty. 
If you're talking about Utah Sitla lands, state lands, state lands for a non-blocked up section of land, 640 acres in that checkerboard, is $6.10 an AUM. If it's blocked up, like some of the lands west of Arches, for example, it's ten sixty four an AUM. And the federal grazing fee oh is $1.35. So if we really are serious about doing something that makes a little more sense, you might at least want to consider charging what the state does in, in the same state. The Mining Act of 1872 uh, has resulted in literally billions of dollars of mining minerals being taken out by U.S. and international individuals and corporations, and no royalty still is paid to the federal government for hard rock minerals, gold, copper, gold, silver, really? nothing. It's only for liquid, like coal, oil, and gas? Yes. Really? Wow. Permanent damage to land and Jeez. water. If you've been to Colorado and even places here, uh, is gonna is never going to be reclaimed completely. Uh, and so at least bottom line is we probably ought to think about some kind of a royalty system that that if we're going to lease them, it, it makes sense from a royalty yeah. standpoint. And the other thing that absolutely has gotten better, but only recently, is if it makes sense to mine, it makes sense to do it right and not trash the land and leave it. Outdoor recreation, you know, if I were going to take my gun for a walk in Texas to hunt a 90-pound a non-trophy white-tailed deer, I'd be paying $2,500 a gun to take it for a chance of shooting one. And here I can get a hunting license and take off and go hunting if I draw out or, or get one over the counter. Uh, you don't do that in places that, that don't have these public lands. Uh, you want to see what that feels like, just pull up a website and try to get a hunting lease in Texas and mm -hmm. see what you're going to pay to do that. Uh, fishing, access to waters in, in a lot of private land states is very difficult to even get there. And, and if you were standing there fishing in a river in many states, including my home state, you'd be trespassing because if you were on one half of the river, you're on the guy's uh, land to the left. If you're on the other side, you're on the guy's land on the right. And you might be able to float through it as long as you don't get out of your boat, but otherwise you'd be trespassing. We don't deal with that here. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Four-wheel driving, I spent lots of time in Texas trying to find, as state parks director using grant money, trying to find little 200-acre pieces of land that somebody be willing to lease to put four-wheel drive trails in, and that was a constant fight. Mountain biking, only in the state park system or some local parks. We have just, we have 200 miles of mountain bike trails probably right here in, in Moab, or we're on the way to it. Uh, river running, if you can get to a river in a lot of these states because you can't trespass across private lands, you might put, throw in it a highway bridge, but it's going to then be a fight on whether you can camp along the way mm -hmm. or whether you can get out of your boat. Horses. You think Texas is this cowboy state. Certainly Wyoming claims to be the cowboy state, but Texas got lots of horses. If you don't have your own ranch and you don't have a friend, you have no place to ride them. So and backpacking and so forth. The last thing I want to really talk about is some serious threats to, to efforts to transfer these lands out of our public ownership to private ownership. Utah passed the Transfer of Public Lands Act in 2012. The governor signed it. It would transfer all the BLM lands here, 
all the U.S. Forest Service lands that are non-wilderness, the Grand Staircase Escalante, and the Utah portion of Glen Canyon National Recreation Area, 31.2 million acres to Utah. They can either keep it or sell it. And I guarantee you, based on what we already have, uh, have done in Utah with selling 4.1 million acres, they'd have to sell it. To find out if that's true, I went to BLM Forest Service, Park Service, and I said, what did it cost you in 2018 to manage the parks? Just in operation and maintenance money, not in big road projects or anything like that. And, and secondly, what were your fire costs? Well, in the first uh, three things, in operation and maintenance, it's right at $200 million that those agencies spend in, in taking care of these lands here. BLM fire cost in 2018 was right at $48 million. U.S. Forest Service fire costs were $36-plus million. That's 80-something that's million dollars in firefighting costs alone. Also, federal revenue sharing gave Utah uh, about $75 million in PILT, which is payment in lieu of taxes, another $40 million. The total spent by the federal government in Utah in 2018 was $406 million plus. That's what Utah would have to come up if they were going to at least manage these lands if they went to them. I don't think that's very possible. That same year, Utah's own fire costs were $35 million, wow. so that would be on top of that, almost almost uh, $450 million. And so, in closing, the la uh, if that were to happen and the lands would go up for auction, Howard, you and I probably wouldn't successfully outbid wealthy Texas oil men who would own it, and the first thing they put up is not a sign saying, y'all come on in. It would be stay out. And in, in, in the 1800s, a guy named Frederick Law Olmsted, who, uh, among other things, laid out the 800 acres that is Central Park in New York City, had a statement that I think is really right on here. And he said that those who are rich enough reserve for themselves the choicest natural scenes. Unless government acts, all places favorable in scenery to the recreation of the mind and the body will be closed against the mass of the people. And, and there's so many places where that is, is so true. One other last thing that I just want to tell you about is the League of Women Voters Public Lands Project. Uh, if you want to find out the best repository that I know of for all the information related to Western lands transfer to states, is in that repository, and if you if you Google trans go to Google transfer of public lands movement, uh, it's the Grand County League of Women Voters Public Lands Project. If you do that, you'll get tons of information about that. And with that, Howard. Well, thank you. Well, I'm going to ask you just a couple of comments on things. We have a little few minutes left before we go. First of all, thank you just for making it the easiest interview show I've ever had. <laughs> <laughs> you didn't answer any questions. <laughs> Thanks a lot. And it's a fascinating history. I just want to put to you a couple of things that are perhaps, maybe three things if we have time. I just want to ask about your feelings about things. First of all, you know, you talked about this ownership of land, public lands, otherwise. In the whole almost 250 years of American history, 
in Grand County, Utah, we have an example of a concept that hasn't been tested anywhere else, and that is sand flats. And you know, there's always this discussion about local control versus federal control. But sand flats kind of bridges that concept, does it not? Because here you have a portion of BLM lands, and the BLM says, okay, for various reasons, I understand that sand flats came because of usage, really. It was over usage and on, out of control, and it became managed lands. And it is one of the most successful things that, that I think, you know, we, we don't really push it beyond our boundaries of this area, but it seems those sort of arrangements might be the bridge towards kind of the, these divisions. How do you feel about that? I think it's a great, a great thing to consider. I do believe, and I don't know specifically, that Goblin Valley was just significantly expanded with BLM lands in some kind of an agreement with, with uh, the state of Utah, state parks to run a bigger, a bigger area over there. I think that ought to be explored a lot. If you've been up on the wedge in the San Rafael Swell, somebody needs to do something with the wedge overlook. It's just like so many places are just out of control. I don't think you're ever going to turn the clock back as far as visitation to public lands now. And, and go out here on the Willow Flats Road on that Sitla land, there were hundreds of, of trailers out there and people out there camped. And that's part of that Dino, Utah Raptor State Park. But it's, it's we got to be creative. And if the state of Utah and their state park system can manage something like that successfully or other counties can do that, it's a great great piece okay let's move on to another really pressing issue and that's you know you work with the national park service my question is i mean m maybe it's just a matter of time before a timed reservation system goes in my only i i i feel that's probably the only logical step forward my only fear in this is that you mentioned it yourself you're not turning down the visitation to this area how are you going to compensate the other areas that are going to be affected when you put a reservation and system in arches in other words Okay, people will know that. They're going to come here still, and they're going to go to other areas. And are those areas going to be managed with the same level of protection as the national parks are? And that's my biggest fear as a resident. So places like Corona Arch will get inundated. They already are. Mill Creek Canyon. So once the park is closed at certain times of day, visitors are going to say, well, where are we going to go? And so we're left as a community with that you know, really awkward decision like, well, where do we send all these people? Do we send them to our favorite spots? And so that's, you know, I mean, Arch is, is busy. I mean, is there other ways that you can get around having to implement a reservation system in order to protect the other areas more than anything else? Well, I guess if you took everybody off Twitter, everybody off Facebook, everybody off of any social media that's no posting all the finest places they just visited and sending pictures to them, you might. Yeah. I'm being facetious, Howard. No, but you're, no, you're absolutely right, though. The, the change since I first got here, saw, saw this place in the 80s and then was superintendent from 91 to 99, is just absolutely amazing. It's, you know, the key to arches is going to be timed entry. And, and timed entry, and I looked at all kinds of things from, from a shuttle system to that, and we could have a whole different discussion about yeah, that. We will. I, I'd, sure. be, I'd be glad yeah, yeah. to we because will. we looked at all those things. Uh -huh. Opening multiple entrances. You just get people in faster to go nowhere because unless you're going to run a line of traffic down the entire road system and arches, which would completely destroy the experience, a limited number. When I was chief ranger in D.C., people would stand for hours in line to get a ticket to go take a tour of the White House. 
only to have a ranger after maybe a couple of hours come walking down the line saying, sorry, folks, all of them are done for today. Come back. Well, they've changed that to a time entry. And if a time entry in Arches, they're going to come yeah. walk the streets of Moab, go to shops, do whatever, maybe even go to Red Rock. And uh, yeah. <laughs> One last thing I'll say. What, what responsibility do you think gateway communities have to not overdevelop because I honestly believe a big part of the reason of overcrowding in Arches has been actually done by Moab by ever increasing the amount of accommodations here, which allows more and more visitors, you know, Arches hasn't changed much in the last 20 years, but Moab sure has. And the ability to accommodate more and more visitors is actually putting a lot of pressure on these national parks. You know, Howard, that's a hard one for me. I spent all my career trying to figure out how to deal with people once they got here if you build lots of hotels and you do lots of advertising, I mean, your thought is not, I hope not many people come. Yeah. So, you know, that's going to be something that we have to have some serious discussions about, and it leads to water qu right. questions and all kinds of things. But, again, in two minutes, we're not going to fix right. this. These are things we'll ponder in future debates, I'm sure, Walt, and I want to thank you very much for taking time to come up and spending the last hour with me. And thanks to you, most of all, the listeners, for being there and keeping this station relevant. You all have a great evening.